See, the truth of it is God never wastes our pain, ever. We're his children. He loves us and he's never going to allow us to suffer or struggle unless it's for our good. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 41. Genesis 41. We're supposed to be done with Joseph in uh, next week, but I think we'll hang around for a couple more weeks. We've got a lot more to learn. And then within the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, start in, Lord willing, the Gospel of Mark, which reads like a play-action script. It was really Peter's Gospel. Mark was took the dictation from Peter. So, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll be into Mark. But right now, let's uh, pick up the narrative for Joseph, just to give you some historical context, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his own brothers. This was one of all-time dysfunctional families. If you come from one, you're in good company because God uses dysfunctional families. Josie, amen. I got one amen out there. Yeah, the rest of you liars. Um, (laughs) We're just in denial. Denial. You know, denial is not a river in Egypt, just saying So Joseph is bought by Potiphar, who's the head of security. Potiphar is the head of the Egyptian KGB for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he buys Joseph. Joseph is 17 years old. He's faithful and diligent, and God blesses his work so that literally everything Joseph touches prospers as he serves in the house of Potiphar. He manages successfully everything, and he's promoted and promoted and promoted until he literally is managing the entire estate of Potiphar. He's really the comptroller. Unfortunately, Potiphar's wife sexually propositions him. He refuses, and so she accuses him of attempted rape. Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison for a number of years, but God is with him even in prison, and so the jailer turns over everything to him. So just like Joseph managed all of Potiphar's estate when he was a slave and, quote, free, Now in prison, he's managing the whole prison. God has blessed him, and Joseph is obedient. And God has him in prison for lots of reasons, but one of them is he has a divine appointment that Joseph can only meet in prison. So Joseph's in prison. He's faithful. He's managing the prison. And at some point in this period of time, Pharaoh gets angry with his chief butler and chief baker and throws them into prison. We don't know exactly why, but we suspect that there was some um, for potentially capital crimes against Pharaoh. Now, remember, the chief butler or the chief cupbearer was in charge of the king's vineyards. And the chief cupbearer had to be very, very trustworthy because the chief cupbearer tasted every drink before the king got it. Because trying to poison the king was pretty common practice. If you didn't want the king around, you poisoned him. So the cupbearer literally sat next to the king at the meal and tasted everything first and then gave it to the king. So if the cupbearer dies because there's poison, the king goes, well, better you than me. Okay. And so the cupbearer had to be very, very 
trustworthy. Now, we're not sure exactly what happened here, but uh, the cupbearer was suspected of probably a capital crime against the, uh, the pharaoh, and the chief baker, of course, was responsible for the food prep for the entire palace. Think chief chef, and you'll probably get the picture for what the, the baker did. So there's probably a plot afoot to kill the pharaoh. And these two are suspects that maybe they're trying to poison uh, the king and get rid of him. So they're under investigation. He throws him in prison and tells, puts him in custody until such time as he completes the investigation. And they just happen to meet Joseph in prison. We call that a divine appointment. And they just both happen to have a dream. And they just happen to have the dream on the same night. And they wake up and they are depressed. And Joseph, who's pretty intuitive and you know, concerned about his fellow prisoners, asks them why they are sad. And 41 verse 8, chapter 41 verse 8 says, They said to him, We have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Which is interesting, you're thinking, do not interpretations belong to God? Oh, by the way, tell me the dream. So therefore, you look and you go, well, maybe Joseph had an inside track here. See, dreams in Egypt were not just ordinary, I ate too many chili rianos and I had a dream or a nightmare. Dreams in Egypt were considered really, really significant. And the, interpret, the ability to interpret dreams was really highly respected. So each man tells Joseph about his dream, and Joseph interprets the dream precisely. Uh, obviously, these dreams came from God, and clearly, the ability to interpret these dreams accurately also came from God. And really, these dreams were given to these two individuals by God to give Joseph the opportunity to reveal the power of God uh, to these two officials. So Joseph tells the butler, look, your dream means that you're going to be restored to your position in three days. In three days, you got your old job back. And you go, wow, that's, that's pretty good news, right? Then he tells the chief baker, in three days, you're going to be hanged. Not so nice a dream interpretation, right? Actually, hanged was, we're going to take your head off and then we're going to impale you on a stake. That's what they did with bodies back then. And in three days, 72 hours, sure enough, it happens exactly as Joseph had predicted it would, had interpreted the dreams. The butler is restored, and the baker is executed. Interesting. Who controls the future? God, so therefore only God can predict it. You can't predict what you can't control. So before the butler leaves jail, Joseph says, Look, I've been imprisoned here. Uh, without cause. I was stolen away from my family. I was enslaved by Potiphar or by my brothers who sold me. I'm here under false pretenses. Can you put a good word for Pharaoh into me when you get your old job back? And this is the very first time in Joseph's life where we realize that he is now relying on human help instead of God's help. And, of course, it did him absolutely no good because when you go to 41.23, it says that, I mean, I'm sorry, 40.23, the very last verse of, of chapter 40, it contains a common description of human behavior. 
Yes, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The butler forgot Joseph. Do you want to know how soon people forget you? We're very concerned what people think about us. Do you know how often they think about you? How often do you think about them? When you see them, out of sight, out of mind, when they leave, you don't think about them anymore, do you? No, we don't. Of course not. So people forget about us very soon, and we forget about others very soon, but God never forgets. God never forgets. He knows your name. He knows your DNA. He knows your hopes and your dreams and your desires, and he loves you. There's an old hymn that says, His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And for God's children, his watching you should give you comfort, unless you're sinning. Because his eye is on the sparrow, and he watches us, whether we're doing what is right or whether we're doing what is wrong, And there's some good accountability in there that says our Heavenly Father sees everything. Whatever you're watching on the screen, He's watching it too. Whoa. Yeah. So in the business of everyday life, we tend to forget the good deeds others have done for us. And of course, the butler forgets Joseph for how long? Two years. You know what that means? Joseph spends another two years in prison because the butler had a brain burp and forgot about it. And that had to be pretty trying. I mean, he's in prison for no reason at this point in time other than doing the right thing because he refused to be seduced by Potiphar's wife. And you say, I wonder why God left Joseph in prison for two more years. Wonder why the stuff in your and my life, the pain in our life, Wonder why God lets us endure it for two more years or another week or another month. How many of you have stuff you've asked God to take away? Like, yesterday, please, just remove it. And for some strange reason, God doesn't see your problem the same way you see your problem. God says, no, my child, I love you. And as a result of my love for you, I want you to live with this issue until I say it's time. And you look and you say, well, why in the world would Joseph stay in jail for two more years? Because obviously Joseph needed more preparation for the role God had in mind for him before he could get out of jail. And Joseph does not know that, but he has to choose whether to trust God in prison or whether to not trust God in prison. See, the truth of it is God never wastes our pain, ever. We're his children. He loves us and he's never going to allow us to suffer or struggle unless it's for our good. And we have to know that. God always has purpose in everything. Even a butler forgetting comes under the sovereignty of God. There are no mistakes in God's kingdom. God never makes a mistake. Joseph is learning this next two years to continue to trust in God And he's also learning the hardest thing for most of us to do, and that is to wait on the Lord. We often struggle with waiting on the Lord because we want what we want when? Preferably yesterday. Psalm 27, 14. 
wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And I've looked at that and looked at that and I've thought, why would anyone choose to wait? Well, well, who are you waiting on? You're waiting on the Lord. You're waiting on God. You choose to wait for the Lord ultimately because you trust His plan and His time more than your plan and your time. And that takes the Holy Spirit because none of us have that kind of patience on our own. Truly, truly. And I've often looked at this verse and I've thought, how come it takes courage to wait? He says, wait on the Lord. And the next verse is, be strong and let your heart take courage. You say, well, how come it takes courage to wait? I'll tell you why it takes courage to wait. Your circumstances are screaming at you to get on with it. Your situation, your struggles, the pain you're in present, right, goes, why wait? Let's fix this like now. And you're going, oh, the Lord says, wait. God will take care of this when he's ready. That takes courage. It also takes faith. See, when we refuse to wait on God, what we're saying is, God, I know better than you do. I'm trusting my plan more than your plan. When you wait on God, what happens is your faith gets exercised. I mean, it's resistance training because your circumstances are painful and you want to fix those circumstances your way, your time, and I'm the world-class athlete at doing this thing wrong. Waiting on God's time is required in order for God's people to accomplish what God has planned for them, and God has major plans for Joseph. By the time Joseph gets out of prison, he will have spent 13 years. And you go, what's the point of spending 13 years in prison? Why do we need all this preparation? Well, he was going to get elevated to what? Prime minister. So God knew the preparation that he needed for the position God was calling him to. The situation you're in right now, God has a plan for all the education you're getting. And usually, I'm talking about difficult circumstance education. I'm talking about painful education. God has a plan for all of that. God took, we used to always say, at least I always thought, God took 40 years to prepare Moses to deliver Egypt from Israel, right? Not true. It took 80. See, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's palace as the literally the crown prince. And at the end of 40 years... It says he, he had, was trained in all the education of Egypt. He was a military commander. He was literate. He was educated. And Moses thought he was ready to deliver Egypt when he was for, deliver Israel from Egypt when he was 40 years old. And we know that because he killed an Egyptian to prove it. He was ready to take over. And God said, um, you're not ready yet. You need to spend another 40 years in the desert. You and the sheep for 40 more years, and then at 80 years old, I've determined you're ready. Now, if you're Moses, and you spent 40 years in the palace, and you've got every bit of training the Egyptians could possibly give you, you're convinced you're ready, and God sends you to the desert. Now, he doesn't tell you you're going to spend the next third of your life in the desert. But if Moses hadn't spent that time as a shepherd, he would have failed as the deliverer of Egypt. Joseph spends 13 years in prison. He doesn't know that the prime ministership is what he's being prepared for. So the situation you and I are in right now, we don't know what God's going to do with that, but the training he has us in now is very, very purposeful. 
if we're willing to learn. If we're willing to learn. God took more than 10 years to prepare David as king, and almost his entire preparation was running for his life from Saul. And you read the Psalms, and you know the spiritual journey he was on. Jesus, Son of God, took how long before he started his ministry? 30 years. There's no convenient, painless path to spiritual maturity. It doesn't exist. There's not instant. You can't order it. It's not microwave. It just takes time. And Joseph's plan for maturity and training was slavery and prison. So whatever circumstances we're in now, we need to say, Lord, I'm trusting you. Chapter 41, verse 1. <clears throat> now it happened. Anytime it says, now it happened, that's the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. Now it happened that at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Wow, just happened. And if you go down to verse 8, the last phrase of verse 8 says, but there was no one who could interpret the dream to Pharaoh. That's just like the butler and baker. They had a dream and there was no one who could interpret it. Isn't that amazing? So Pharaoh's got this dream and it really bothers him and there's no one that can interpret it. And at that precise moment, the chief cupbearer has a flashback. Bing! The lights go on. He remembers that two years ago, he was in jail with the chief baker. And there's this young Hebrew named Joseph who interpreted his dream, and it came to pass precisely as predicted. So he tells Pharaoh about Joseph, right? Many, many times God allows us to experience things we don't understand. Ever had that experience? Ever, ever had God allow something in your life and you go, what was that all about? What was the point? James says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. He'll give you wisdom. So at that, we need to ask for wisdom and wait on God to show us what to do next. Chapter 41, go to verse 14. Now we're going to jump into the narrative. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. I love this. It says they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. I bet they did. Where he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Here's the principle. God teaches us to depend on him alone by giving us problems that have no human solution. Don't look at me, write it down. God teaches us to depend on Him alone by giving us problems that have no human solution. And I know that many of us in the room right now have problems and there is no human solution. Those are not accidents. Those are designed by God, among other things, to teach us to depend on Him. So Joseph's in prison and he's got a beard. All Hebrew males had a beard. It was a sign of maturity and honor. However, all the Egyptians were clean-shaven, all of them. That was that culture. They only wore beards during periods of mourning. Egyptians were real big on cleanliness. So as not to offend Pharaoh, I mean, they need to get Joseph out of prison quick and get him in front of Pharaoh, 
but he's got to shave and clean up and put on Egyptian clothes and get ready to see Pharaoh. Just that's just being culturally sensitive. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, <clears throat> I hear you have the ability to interpret dreams. Your reputation, baby, has preceded you. You're a famous man. Now, if you were a negotiator and you were Joseph, this would be a good time to let's make a deal. You would say, Pharaoh, you know, I've been in prison unjustly for about 13 years here or, and a slave. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you get me out of prison and set me free, my mind would be really much more able to interpret this dream. I wouldn't be so stressed over this prison stuff. Now, Jacob might have tried this. He was clever, not Joseph. The first words out of Joseph's mouth after Pharaoh praised him were what? Has nothing to do with me. I don't have any innate personal ability to interpret dreams. I have no ability. God is the source of all interpretations. God could entrust Joseph with divine insight because Joseph was careful to give God the credit for the insight that God gave him. So Joseph immediately throws all the focus on God, not on himself. Essentially, he says, Pharaoh, your dreams came from God, and God alone can tell you what they mean because only God can control the future. We're going to notice in verses 16, 25, 28, and 32, those four verses, five times Joseph says, God will give Pharaoh the answer. God has told Pharaoh what he's going to do. The matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Five times Joseph points toward God, which is, I think, a very good thing for us because the temptation to take credit for what God does in our life is very strong, very strong. Joseph is telling Pharaoh who's in charge. And it's not Joseph, and it's not Pharaoh. Now, you got to think about this. This guy comes from prison. And he tells the king of the most powerful empire of its day, you ain't in charge, dude. Pardon me? That requires a little courage. He says, God's in charge. You've had a dream and the interpretation comes from God. And what's going to happen next comes from God too. So these dreams are very difficult. And they reveal a very difficult future. But God in mercy is warning Pharaoh in advance so that the nation could get prepared. Verse 17, Pharaoh's now going to tell Joseph the dream. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the fat, the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. I also saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears of corn, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears, withered thin and scorched by the east wind, that was from the desert, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the good seven ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God had told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. 
So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and God will bring it quickly about. Here's the principle. God authenticates himself as the only true God when he reveals the future in advance and then causes it to happen precisely as predicted. God authenticates himself as the only true God when he reveals the future in advance and then causes it to happen precisely as predicted. And this occurs throughout Scripture. There are hundreds, literally, of prophecies in the Old and New Testament that have been predicted and have come to pass precisely as predicted, and that authenticates that the God of the Bible is the only true God. He's not another God. He is the only God. So God speaks to people in different ways, different epochs, different means, and different methods. Hebrews 1 tells us that. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Moses from a burning bush. He spoke to Abraham over lunch one day. He spoke to Jacob in visions. And now he speaks to Pharaoh through dreams. God is a communicating God. God is a God who wants people to know his will so that they can obey it and come into a right relationship with God. That's the kind of God he is. He's a relational God. So today, God generally doesn't speak to us through dreams, although that does occur around the world where the word is not prevalent. Most of the time, God speaks us through the, his Bible, through the word. You want to know what God thinks? You want to know what his will is? You got it. You open it up and you read it in English even. He speaks us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens our minds. You should never open the Word of God without asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so you can understand it. Sometimes you read a passage and you say, I don't get it. Ask the Holy Spirit to turn the floodlights on. And He will. He will help you understand it. God also speaks to us to some degree through circumstances and God's people. God's people drop a word on you from the Lord. Da, 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 and you go, oh, exactly what I needed to hear. That's God speaking through his people to your heart. Now, Pharaoh is worshipped as God. So it's really unlikely that any human messenger is going to even get in to talk to him. Right? So God bypasses the human element, and he goes straight to Pharaoh through two dreams. And it's interesting, in Joseph's life, these dreams seem to come in twos. I mean, Joseph has two dreams, right? That his family's going to bow down and worship him. The butler and baker have a dream each, two dreams. Now Pharaoh has two dreams, two years after the butler and baker's dreams. And these dreams Pharaoh had were very vivid. They were very mysterious and very ominous in many ways. Pharaoh doesn't understand them, but he's convinced these dreams came from God. They're divine, and he's very, very motivated to find out what they mean. So he summons all his wise men, <clears throat> kind of the members of his cabinet. This is kind of a presidential cabinet. They were the chief advisors for Pharaoh. And they were largely highly educated members of the priestly caste, astrologers, academics. They were the PhDs of the day. They were probably mediums. They were practitioners of magic. Egypt was a big culture on magic. There was a lot of just supernatural um, uh, magical beliefs at that point in time. So this cabinet, these wise men, were the best and the brightest in Egypt, and not one of them could interpret those meanings of the dreams. Not one. No help at all. And, of course, that shouldn't surprise us. These dreams came from God, right? The dreams came from God. 
And we know 1 Corinthians 2 tells us the thoughts of God can only be discerned by the Spirit of God. So when you read the Bible, you understand it because the Spirit of God teaches you. When you have friends that don't know Jesus Christ, they don't have the Holy Spirit, they read the Word of God and they go, it don't make any sense to me. Well, of course not. You don't have the Holy Spirit to interpret it for you at that point. So God is revealing to Pharaoh the foolishness of human wisdom. Matter of fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.20, God makes the wisdom of the world foolishness. So <clears throat> here's what God's strategy is. He gives Pharaoh a pressing problem no human can solve. So Pharaoh now is very open. He's very motivated to hear what the solution for this dream is, how you interpret it and what it means. He's very desperate. So God brings Joseph in, and he's going to use Joseph to define the problem, propose the solution. Pharaoh is really eager to listen to what Joseph has to say because he recognizes that these dreams come from God. Have you noticed that people's hearing aid to God seems to work better when they're in pain? Have you noticed that your hearing aid to God seems to work better when you're in pain? So in that case, I'm not saying we should pray for pain. But when it comes, we probably should say, Lord, what do you want to teach me? So Pharaoh has these dreams, and both of these dreams have a paradox. Pharaoh dreams that there are seven fat, healthy cows that are literally chewed up and eaten up by seven skinny, ugly cows. And seven full ears of corn are swallowed up by seven thin and wasted ears of corn. Now, cannibalistic cows and corn, that's a strange dream. The mystery to Pharaoh is even though the thin ears and the thin cows eat up the fat ears and the fat cows, they're still thin and ugly. And you're going, man, if I could do that at Thanksgiving time, that'd be really special. The Pharaoh wants answers. And, you know, when you look at this, the providence of God is all over this. Who gave Pharaoh the dreams? God. Who prevented Pharaoh's wise men from interpreting the dreams? Who reminded the cupbearer about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams? Who led Pharaoh to summon Joseph? Who revealed the meaning of these dreams to Joseph so he can then tell Pharaoh? I mean, the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit are all over this. So Joseph says, Pharaoh, seven cows and seven ears means seven years. By the way, the, the Egyptians worshipped the cow. That was a symbol of fertility for them. And Egypt was the granary for the entire ancient world. Alexandria down there on the delta, the huge grain country, a lot of wheat for the entire empire at that point. So obviously that meant a lot of food, crops, etc. So you have seven cows in seven years means seven years of abundant crops. The fat cows and the fat ears of corn means you're going to have seven years of massive crops, huge surpluses. You're going to be drowning in the stuff. And following that, you're going to have seven skinny cows and seven blasted ears of corn means seven years of famine will follow the seven years of abundance. As a matter of fact, the famine is going to be so bad that the abundance will be forgotten. No one will even remember how much surplus you had because the famine is going to be so severe. And God repeats the dream twice. 
obviously that demonstrates to Pharaoh, oh, these weren't just random dreams. They just didn't happen. They both happened. They had purpose and meaning. It's also, Joseph says, it signifies that God's going to do this quickly. Like this growing season, we're going to start. You're going to have empirical evidence very soon that I speak truth because you're going to have a bumper crop like you've never seen bumper crops. You want evidence that this is truth? Look for the bumper crop. You're going to see it. It's interesting. Joseph highlights God's sovereign control. Have you noticed that God doesn't ask Pharaoh's permission to have seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine? God also doesn't explain why he's going to bring seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. God simply tells Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen in your nation in the next 14 years. Seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. Wonder how we would live if we knew what was going to happen to us in the next 14 years. Most of us probably would not do well with that knowledge. And that's why God doesn't tell us. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, I know what Pharaoh's thinking at this point. Houston, we have a problem. Right? I mean, multi-year famines will destroy empires. You know, in contemporary Western society, we really have no idea what a famine is like. We have no experience with famine since the Industrial Revolution. We haven't had a famine that really affected the West. Here's why. Modern transportation ships food around the world. You go to the store and you buy produce from Chile in January in California. And you're thinking, well, you know... Sailing boats don't get it here that quick. It's called it rots on the way, right? So food production is local. And if you ran out of food locally, you starved. That was the nature of the beast. Transportation is very, very slow. Perishable food didn't survive. So really, all you could transport was mostly the grains, wheat, corn, and stuff like that. So a drought meant, drought, obviously, crop failure. And instead of shipping food to where the population was, you know what people did? They migrated. Remember, we wrote, we read about it. Abraham and Isaac, when there was famines, what did they do? They picked up and moved. They grabbed the tents and the flocks and herds, and they moved to where there was rain. That's where there was, where there's rain, there's grain, and your your and grassland, and your your animals can eat, and you won't starve to death. So seven years of famine could destroy an entire empire very, very easily. So what they need is a solution, which God now provides. Verse 33. Joseph not only gives Pharaoh the problem, he gives him a solution. He says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him ex exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the city under Pharaoh's authorities and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. Here's the principle. Planning that solves problems. Some planning doesn't solve problems. But planning that solves problems 
requires wise leadership, measurable outcomes, and specific timelines. Who is responsible to do what by when? That's just shorthand, right? So planning that solves problems requires wise leadership, measurable outcomes, and specific timelines. Who is responsible to what by when? And Joseph has all three of these in his recommendation. Now, Joseph has the gift of administration, clearly. And he's looking for a structural solution to the problem. And when you know a shortage is going to occur, and you know it, God's predicted it, what you do is you plan to save and store up the surplus now, right? If you know a shortage is going to occur in the future at that point. It's been said that we cannot predict the future, so we have to prepare for whatever might happen. But God had told Pharaoh precisely what was going to happen and when it was going to happen and how long it was going to last. So Joseph gives Pharaoh a very specific strategy. The strategy is simple. We're going to establish a national strategic food reserve for the empire. And we're going to pay for that by, by exacting a 20% crop tax during the years of surplus. And we're going to store that surplus up for the seven years of famine that are coming. So that would, not, would do two things. One, it would ensure the survival of the nation because you don't lose people. By the way, starvation, you lose a lot of population. They literally die. So it would ensure the survival of the empire, but it would, it would also allow Egypt to acquire vast wealth relative to neighboring nations. You know why? People always go where the food is. So if Egypt is the only nation in the region that has food, where are the surrounding nations going to come to buy food from? Egypt. Who's got the grain? Egypt. Can they charge whatever price they want if they're the only one with the grain? People will pay anything in order to stay alive. Right? We see that during hurricanes. People charge ridiculous prices for bottles of water because it's rare. So this not only allows the survival of Egypt, it allows the domination of Egypt and the entire surrounding region because this was not a local famine, it was a regional famine. Joseph has got his hands full. He's got, to, he's got to administer a vast army of civil servants. They've got to go calculate what a 20% tax looks like for every farmer. They've got to collect the grain. They've got to transport it to the local town. They've got to store it, and they guard it so it's not stolen or decayed. I mean, this is a national effort like World War II. I mean, it literally is the entire nation gets mobilized to prepare for this catastrophe. Now, this is pretty basic. How many of you believe it's a good idea to save for a rainy day? You know what most Americans call saving for a rainy day? A credit card. I don't need to save any money. I'll just put it on the credit card, and that's my savings account. Unfortunately, there's a rather high administrative cost for that savings account, right? You all pay credit card interest if you ever have. Uh, if you're still doing it, I highly recommend you stop doing it as soon as possible. The reality is there's always going to be rainy days in our future. We don't know when they're going to occur. We don't know how long they're going to last. So the prudent thing is reserves of anything. How many of you have a refrigerator at home? How many of you have a freezer at home? And a pantry. That's called reserves of food. And you go, Brad, this is kind of a duh, right? How many have a cash reserve saving account? That's a reserve of money. How many of you have a medicine chest? 
Oh, yes. Yes. By the way, you can swap prescription drugs with each other. That's helpful sometimes. Right? You never done that? You've never done that? That's what friends are for. I mean, come on. How many of you have a closet? How many of you have closets? Plural. Those are called reserves of clothing, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm getting a little ridiculous here. But you understand the principle. If there's ever going to be a shortage of something in the future, savings today, surplus, save the surplus, is probably prudent. By the way, you do not need to spend everything you earn. That is not a law. It's really a good idea to spend less than you earn and to save the surplus because the day will come when you're going to need it, right? We just don't know when. I know, I know you go, Brad, this is pretty obvious. Most Americans don't practice this. Truly, when we were children, we, we were migrant farm workers almost, and we canned 1,000 quarts of fruits and vegetables every year. That's called preparing for winter when there are no crops. This is kind of a basic strategy. So the bottom line is we should always trust in God to provide, but the methods God uses to provide for us include, look, I gave you a surplus this year. Don't spend it all. Save some of it. Next year, you might not have a surplus, right? So let me give you some eternal perspective. I mean, this is, you say, well, Brad, this is pretty basic. Save the grain for the future to come. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But there's eternal reality behind what God is doing. God's global plan was for Joseph to store up grain in the years of plenty so that they would not starve in the years of famine. But the plan went far beyond physical life. God's ultimate plan is what? Save the human race from sin by sending a Messiah to earth called Jesus Christ. And God was setting aside a special people for himself through whom the Messiah would be born. This Messiah named Jesus was going to be born about 2,000 years into the future from Jacob's descendants called the nation of Israel. If Messiah was going to come from Jacob's descendants, then Jacob's descendants had to be preserved alive. Or where's Messiah going to come from? And where's the human race going to be saved from sin from? So in order for Messiah to be born, Jacob's family not only has to stay physically alive, they have to stay spiritually pure. And they're in Canaan right now, and the evil influence of Canaan is starting to work on Jacob's family. You've already seen some of this. I mean, two of his sons massacre a whole village, right? So the evil of Canaan society is really not working well on, on Jacob. It's corrupting him. So God says, I'm going to send a famine. And you say, why would God send a famine? Because it's going to take a famine to lever... Jacob out of Canaan and get him into Egypt. And you go, well, that's a rather extreme solution. Well, Jacob has a problem with listening. He's not a terribly obedient guy when you think about it. But hunger will motivate you to do things. Sometimes God really has to crank the pressure up on our life to get us to do what he wants us to do, right? Say yes. And if we listened earlier, the pain point would not have to be so high, right? So God has a plan. He's going to move Jacob from Canaan into Egypt because of hunger. And God had already told Abraham, by the way, your descendants are going to a foreign land for 400 years. 
And then they're going to come back to this land of Canaan and they're going to come back with a lot of wealth and I'm going to punish the nation that puts them in captivity. That's Genesis 15 for those who want to cross-check that. Jacob's family is about 70 people. God's plan is to grow this family into a nation of 2 million people. And that requires a spiritually safe place for them to grow because if they're in Canaan, they're going to be corrupted. So God's going to use the nation of Egypt and primarily the land of Goshen, which is an isolated part on the delta, as an incubator to grow Jacob's family from 70 to 2 million, and it takes about 400 years. And then he's going to bring them out of Egypt with Moses and back into the promised land where he promised them to spend eternity there, right? Long term. So God is going to preserve the nation of Egypt primarily to be the incubator for Israel. That's the big picture. So that you and I can have a savior. So you go, well, so this, this grain business and this preserving life business, the saving stuff, is a lot more about physical life. Uh-huh. About your salvation. Verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne it will be greater than you. Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Here's the principle. God promotes the prepared. We prepare for future promotions by faithfully filling today's responsibilities. God promotes the prepared. We prepare for future promotions by faithfully fulfilling today's responsibility. I mean, this is, you really can see the sovereignty of God. Joseph comes out of prison, shaves, cleans up, stands before Pharaoh, hears the dream, gives Pharaoh what the dream means, and gives him the solution to the problem that the dream portends. And in the matter of probably two to three hours, he's promoted from prison to prime minister. Now, that's a real fast elevator from the basement to the top of a skyscraper. You go from prison to prime minister. Only God can make that work. That's supernatural. God led Pharaoh to appoint Joseph as prime minister in order to accomplish God's plan, not Pharaoh's plan, not Joseph's plan, God's plan. Psalm 75, 6. You want to know where promotion comes from? It doesn't come from your boss. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert. The desert means south. Nor from the desert comes promotion. But God is the judge. He puts down one and promotes another. You want to know why blankety-blank gets elected to blankety-blank office in blankety-blank state? God decides that's what happens. The sovereignty of God is over every decision. And we go, well, I'm not sure I like God's choices. Well, you're going to need to trust him because he has an eternal time perspective and we can't see past lunchtime. Thought Proverbs 21.1. Why did Pharaoh appoint Joseph? 
The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he chooses. One of our big problems in our culture today is we trust in people way too much. We trust in government way too much. Now, we need righteous government. Don't get me wrong. Government is ordained by God, Romans 13. It's accountable to God for lots of things. But Proverbs says, do not put your trust in princes. People will always fail you. They will. They're broken. They're sinners. Even the best. That's why God says, pray for those leaders. Hold them accountable. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. They need the Spirit of God to lead them, to guide them, and to correct them. Just like you and I need the Spirit of God as well. So Joseph has been faithful in his fulfilling his smaller obligations. So God progressively entrusts him with greater responsibilities all the way to the prime minister. See, has, have you ever thought to yourself, if I were king for a day, here's what I would do. And you know what we're focused on? The power. I would like to stroke of the pen, law of the land, man, here's what I would do. Most people focus on the power. They don't focus on the responsibilities. I mean, the perks of being a prime minister sound really, really great. But when the future of the entire empire is on your shoulders, nah, maybe not so much. God has been teaching Joseph to depend on him in prison so that Joseph would continue to depend on him as prime minister. It's very, very easy when God entrusts us with more power to start trusting in ourselves and less on him. That doesn't work. So God's got a plan, and he's got really a divine timeline for the people on planet Earth, and God is using Joseph to fulfill part of that plan. Joseph's promotion was never about Joseph. Your promotion's never about you. God never gives us position and power so we can exalt ourselves above others. God entrusts us with his resources so that we can fulfill his purpose through whatever position he gives us. So whatever position you're in right now has been given to you by God for a purpose. It's always about God's plan for people, and it's about how God has placed us precisely where he wants us to make the contribution he's prepared us to make. God's really been working with Joseph for 13 years in very difficult circumstances to prepare him to administer the entire empire. So God speaks through Joseph with such apparent wisdom that even a pagan king says what? There's a divine spirit in this person. That's also said of Daniel and Jesus' disciples. And who lives inside you? God himself, his Holy Spirit. Do you and I speak and live in such a way that even the pagan world understands that there's something supernatural about you. It's obvious that there is a divine spirit in you. Joseph was living in such a way that Pharaoh, a pagan king, says, this is obviously supernatural. This, this is obviously from God. We should be living that way. You know, we often pray that God will change our circumstances, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, have no, I don't think there's any biblical thing wrong with saying, God, please change my circumstances. I also think it's important that we acknowledge that God has placed us in those circumstances for his eternal purposes. So maybe another request might be along with that. God, please teach me what you want me to learn from my present situation. As opposed to just saying, God, change my present situation. 
God, please help me to fulfill the purpose that you planned for me when you put me in this present situation. You have purpose for me to fulfill in my present situation. God doesn't make mistakes, so if you're in a present situation, it's obviously there because of His sovereign will. God, help me to be faithful and diligent in living for you and making you known where I am right now. See, God's going to promote us when He determines we're ready for promotion, right? 13 years for Joseph was a long time. 80 years for Moses was a long time. If we haven't been promoted yet, it means that God knows we still have lessons to learn in our present position. So we should be asking, Lord, what is it you want me to learn where I am now? And if it's your will, I would love a change. But I want to be faithful where I am today with what you've already entrusted with me. Okay, let's review, and then I'm going to ask Tom to come up and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, God teaches us to depend on Him alone by giving us problems that have no human solution. And some of us in this room have problems with no human solution. And we can try and fix it in our own strength, or we can cry out to God and say, Lord, I need wisdom to understand, and I need faith to wait on you to accomplish what you want to accomplish in this situation that I have no idea what to do with. Number two, God authenticates himself as the only true God when he reveals the future in advance and then causes it to curb precisely as predicted. God throughout Scripture does that, so the God of the Bible, the God that you know through Jesus Christ is the only true God. There is nothing that's outside his purview, and he makes no mistakes because you are his child. Number three, planning that solves problems requires wise leadership, measurable outcomes, and specific timelines. By the way, this works in parenting. It works on the job. It works with colleagues. Who is responsible to do what by when? Very simple. And lastly, God promotes the prepared. And the way we prepare for the future promotion is by faithfully fulfilling our responsibilities in the present. And that would be a good thing to ask to say, Lord... Are there any other parts of my job description that you have for me right here that I'm supposed to be doing? I mean, I think I'm fulfilling the job description you gave me, but maybe there's other work I need to do right now in the present. Okay? You have enough to work on? Yeah, the Holy Spirit's very faithful. I pray for you every week, uh, and we'll continue to. I love you, and now that you know, read ahead. Next week, we're going to learn about forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.